Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Professor Gregory Nemet, who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's La Follette School of Public Affairs. His research focuses on understanding the process of technological change and the ways in which tech, uh, public policy can affect it. He's also the author of the book, How Solar Became Cheap, a model for low-carbon innovation that was published in 2019. Welcome to the interview, Greg. Great. It's good to be here. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk about technology change uh, and its role in the energy transition. And just to set some context for listeners and uh, regular listeners of this podcast will know that that I've had interviews with other, well, many other academics, where we talk about the interplay between energy technology and climate policy, and how many of those academics have put the onus or the, the preponderance of emphasis uh, on uh, policy as the driver of the energy transition. And one of them even went so far, and I thought this was a really interesting insight. This uh, economist in question uh, advises a lot of governments in Canada, and he he talk, said, you know, I go into these meetings, and as soon as I we get into this conversation, the policymakers uh, say, oh, well, the te technology is driving this, then I don't have to do anything. And they they see it as an excuse yeah. to not act. And, and so... Maybe that has some influence on, on people like that particular economist who really don't want to give them an excuse to not act. Hmm. But so right. let's let me throw this out to you as a general question. What is the role of technology change in the energy and in, in the energy transition? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's at the very center of it all. And it's what enables it to happen quickly and affordably. And, you know, there are levers we can pull. Uh, some of which are policy, other which have to do with business, other which just have to do with social preferences and how people prioritize different things in their life, whether it's energy efficiency or climate change or, or other attributes or energy security. Um, but, you know, at the core are these devices that find ways to convert one form of energy into something that's more useful or more convenient or more clean or more flexible or whatever the attributes and the value added that it's that it's doing are. So from my perspective, all of these factors are inherently intertwined. There's a technological component. That's a, there's a hardware component like devices. There's a software component, like how do we use them and integrate them and actual code as well. Um, there's policy that has played a role in the past and there's politics that plays a role, especially as we go forward. Uh, and there's, and there's social preferences too. And so, yeah, I, I think all of these are, are playing a big role. And I, from where I come from, I'm a disciplinary mutt. I was a, a trained interdisciplinarity. I, I took econ economics courses. I teach in a school of public policy. I, you know, have taught environmental studies and I've done engineering courses in my training as well. And so I just really look at empirically what has happened 
uh, and use that uh, to provide insight for, for future change and what the drivers might be in the future. But the, the technological developments that we have, especially, I mean, the, the stars are these three, solar, wind, and batteries. Uh, if, the, if they hadn't changed and gotten better in the way they have, we wouldn't really be talking about a fast energy transition. Well, let's talk about, uh, I think, a fundamental difference between this energy transition and other tra energy transitions. So, for instance, if we're talking the 19th century, we can talk about, you know, the transition from whale oil, blubber to kerosene, something like that. But it's always from one commodity to another commodity. This is the first time that energy has become really a technology. Right. I mean, wind and solar and batteries and hydro and all of those things are not commodities at all. You don't dig them up and and or you don't yeah. harvest them from some other place. They're not a commodity. They're a technology. And that, to me, makes this transition fundamentally different from others. Absolutely. And a big difference is, as you're saying, like, yeah, in the past, the, the transitions have been one fuel to another. And now we're talking about from one type of device to another and many implications of that difference. But one of the most important to me is that if we think about fuels and using more and more of them, they generally become scarce. For certain times, they may become abundant as new sources are discovered. But generally, we're talking about exhausting a non-renewable resource. Whereas with the transition and the technology we're talking about here, we've got other factors such as economies of scale and manufacturing, learning by doing and installing them, both of which make the costs come down over time. And so it's a really different dynamic where these new technologies are really deflationary. They tend to reduce the cost the more they get used uh, versus the technologies of the past, where as we use more of them, they become scarce and become more expensive. That's a big difference. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I want to get I want to get to your the question of uh, how solar became a model for low carbon innovation. But before we do that, one other point, I want to run this past you uh, because it addresses the issue of this policy versus technology change debate that we I meant we mentioned earlier. And that is if you I always think about technology change as an s curve. So you know at the bottom of the s curve, you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 years of development, whether it's solar, whether it's lithium ion batteries, whether it's wind turbines, whatever it is, it they you don't introduce a rarely do you introduce a new technology into the marketplace and then have it succeed, you know, and, and displace other technologies in a big way within a short period of time. They're, they're always they come inexpensive, then you learn by doing and you and by scaling up, costs fall, value increases. And adoption uh, grows over time until you hit the inflection point on the S-curve, uh, usually 20, 30, 40 years after they've been inter first introduced to the marketplace. And then once they hit that inflection point at 5 or 10% of sales, then boom, you've got hockey stick growth. Uh, and you know, away, away you go, and eventually they displace the old technology. And, and it seems to me that the in part, that's a good way to think about the debate between policy and and technology change because the, a lot of a lot of these technologies began because of policy you know wind and wind uh, solar certainly uh wind certainly uh you think of germany and, and solar for uh development of solar technology and then after a while the pump once you've primed the pump for for a number of decades the pump is primed and it runs on its own 
And then policy can shift to other areas. It doesn't have to be exclusively devoted to developing and, and supporting early adoption of technology. So that's kind of a long-winded way, I guess, of saying uh, me arguing that uh, the key technologies that drive this energy transition have either passed the inflection point on the adoption S-curve or are will, will in a very short time. Yeah, absolutely, because there's this issue of speed. And if we think about trying to protect uh, the climate and keep warming below two degrees and aim for 1.5 degrees, which 195 countries agreed to in 2015, that means we have to get to net zero emissions by mid-century, like around 2050, 2060. And that means it all has to happen quickly. And so, yeah, if you've got these decadal times from inventing a technology to getting to widespread adoption, we need to be pretty far along in a technology to have it play a role, an important role in the 2040s and 2050s um, by the time we need them. So that's why things like wind, solar, and batteries that have been in development for decades and are now becoming substantial portions of the energy and transportation systems are really crucial because, yeah, it's scale up time. It's time to get to 50% of cars being electric, 50% of energy being wind and solar. You know, those things are, are within sight now um, because those tech, new technologies are in the lab now and starting to, you know, come into commercial. Those will be helpful, but we can't expect those to be relevant, you know, in the next decade or two. They'll be important later on, which is also important. Um, but yeah, we need to keep the the time frames. There's a, there's a limit to how much we can speed things up, even if we get uh, incredibly committed to uh, stabilizing the climate and getting any, all the carbon out of the Right. I, I get this argument all the time from energy economists who, you know, talk about the inertia of the of the fossil fuel energy system. It's it's it literally is like a like a, you know, an oil a tanker. It doesn't turn on a dime it and that inertia will take it a long way. But eventually you can slow it and, and make the turn. I guess that's the, the key point here. Well, let's talk about uh, your book, uh, How Solar Became Cheap, a Model for Low Carbon Innovation. What is the model? Well, the model is, if we look at what has happened in the past, um, one thing you'll realize is that no one country did it. Every country that led the technological frontier on solar gave up its lead. Every country, a company that was the leading manufacturer of solar never stayed in that position for more than a few years. It was a relay race from one country to another, one company to another. International flows were crucial. And it all happened way too slowly, as we just talked about with the speed of the transition. You know, the first commercial sale of a solar panel was to the U.S. Navy in 1958. And here we are today in 2022 with 3% of electricity worldwide coming from solar. So it's on its way, but it's taken a long way to get there. So if it's a model, we have to find ways to speed it up. And the three things that I look for if we think about other technologies would be to find ways to enhance technological development, that's R&D, that's education, that's training, that's early deployment, that's one of them. Uh, second is looking at knowledge spillover, so finding ways to get people access to the technology, to spread it, to have lots of users, lots of developers, new applications. Solar was amazing that way, in part because it was small and modular and easy for others to pick up and build on. And third, we need to create markets, and we need to be stimulating early markets for new technologies, then finding markets that are bigger with strong, clear expectations that markets are large and growing to scale them up. And in the long term, uh, create incentives to get those technologies used and potentially find uh, policies that 
move other technologies out of the way, like like fossil fuels. So that's that's the playbook uh, that's come from solar. And if you look at one that's used that playbook very successfully, it's batteries for electric vehicle. It's almost exactly the same set of conditions, uh, the same drivers, the same way it's happening, small, modular, many uh, units, uh, existing technology that's been commercial since 1991, and just doing more and more with that. And it's been incredibly successful. And we've got some countries where more than half of new vehicles are electric, and that's what we need for the whole world pretty quickly. So that one's on its way. And then we think of, could we do that for other technologies um, as well? And so it really helps to have something that has worked well, even if it's not perfect, it's it's not been fast enough. So we have to find ways to speed things up. But you know, that's a technology that even 10 years ago, people talked about solar as something that was interesting, elegant, cool physics, but nothing serious for an energy system that's so big and so resistant to change. And here we are and things are changing quickly. So that's it's really important to pay attention to what's happened well there. Well, speaking of changing things changing quickly, uh, last week, uh, President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, $369 billion uh, for climate initiatives and, and green, greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, but my take on this, Greg, and it is really fascinating because in Canada, the perception of the of that act is that it's mainly around greenhouse gas emissions. But as I read the, the trade press and I read commentators in the U.S., there's a much bigger focus, I think, and a much better recognition that this is all about catching China. And, and you remember back in 2020, uh, President Biden, well, he was candidate Biden at that time in his in his presidential campaign platform. He said it, there's a, a great paragraph uh, where he says, look, uh, we need to acknowledge that China has overtaken us on all of these, you know, clean energy technologies, e battery. United States of America, the number one uh, 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 nation for, you know, a, a clean energy nation. So those weren't his words, but uh, that gets you a sense of what he was getting at. We will be number one and we'll overtake and overtake China. And to me, that's the focus of the of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's it's like declaring economic war on on China and saying, hey, no, 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 we're now going to reshore the, you know, the battery supply chains. We're going to build electric vehicles. We're going to build solar panels and, and wind turbines, and we're going to be a powerhouse in the clean energy technology. That's my take. I'm kind of curious how, how you see it. Well, that's one of the important motivations that hasn't been there before is competition with China and trying to play a role with us actually you know supplying not just its own uh consumption but the whole world's access to clean energy technologies and so i think you bring a broader coalition of people to support something which was absolutely crucial with such a you know hairline majority uh in the senate to pass that bill it needed lots of support and it couldn't just be about climate and so i think climate is a big part of it and it, it's significant this is the first real legislation on climate the us has ever had and so it is climate related and we can get from something like 25% reductions to 40% reductions because of this. So that's that's substantial and meaningful. And it also gives the U.S. a platform on which to speak with the rest of the world, which, you know, the U.S. is really losing its credibility in trying to catalyze other 
uh, nations to act on climate if it didn't have its own domestic. So now it looks like it's really happening. So that's important, the climate part. Yeah, but the the China manufacturing story, that has turned out to be something that, you know, probably really initiated under the Obama administration where it imposed the first tariffs on Chinese solar panels. The EU started imposing tariffs on Chinese solar panels. Then the Trump administration made it a really big part of the 2016 campaign uh, about China. And I think the Democrats have found that, you know, maybe, maybe a problem even, um, that there's no political cost of bashing China in the US. And it, there's only advantage, it's only advantageous. And that's something that's become one of the few bipartisan shared values that the US has in such a polarized environment is that everyone agrees we need to compete with China. And so I think that is was an important selling point um, to get to get it across the line is is um, competing with China. But you know, also COVID supply chain conditions, there's reasons that the US and other countries probably do need to be more self-sufficient uh, in order to, to enable this transition, partly to make sure that there's continuous policy support and political support, because this is inherently going to be a long-term process. And so we need to show people this is not just about saving the climate for the whole world and for future generations. This is providing economic benefits in the near term. Manufacturing has some special uh, meaning that way, I think, because there's been such a loss in manufacturing in parts of the U.S. to think of that growing to meet this transition. That's a really appealing message. And there really has been money put toward that, you know, something like 60 some billion dollars of the 350 or so is going to support manufacturing in the US. So yeah, this is, I'm glad you picked up on that because it's an important part of the of the legislation. Well, th there's another part of that, and that is the uh, supply chains. Uh, and this is something, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, I don't think supply chains were in the common vernacular. Who talked about supply chains? Now everybody's talking about supply chains because I, I think what we recognize is that China very deliberately 10 or 15 years ago set out to dominate supply chains in key uh, clean energy uh, sectors. And I mentioned a few, like if you look at, well, let's take EV batteries. You know, if you critical minerals, I mean, they, they, you know, there are a number of them that they uh, supply, uh, so they have over 50% of and processing where they you know supply 77% of the of the global capacity you know if you if you want to dig up lithium in in United States and put it into a battery you got to send it to China first to get it processed and refined so key bottleneck then you go upstream a little further and you've got your battery cells again dominated by China and then you get into the actual battery manufacturing 80% in China. And then you get into EVs and it's over 50%. And you can see the Chinese strategy and how successful it's been. And, and I'm sure that the US policymakers looked at that and said, okay, well, we're going to pick off pieces or all of those supply chains, and we're now going to set them up. Now, I think, you know, kudos to those policymakers for doing it on a regional basis, you know, North America, as opposed to just the United States, because Canada and Mexico want in on this gig, too. And I think they're going to be really important partners on it. Uh, we're, in fact, we're kind of counting on it up here north of the border. But but I think that, that the, the issue of, of building, strategically building supply chains to enable manufacturing to compete with China and Europe and and. Uh, uh, well, and, and Japan and Korea and, and other places. I, I, is that getting enough play in the U.S.? 
I don't know. I mean, it's certainly it's something I've seen very closely from, you know, being in China and seeing how strategic this was done. Like this was from their five-year plan from about 10 years ago that renewables would be a strategic industry. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that's interesting. But they verily put, you know, their policy and their money where their plan is. Like they really have, as you say, it's not that they have all of the minerals in the mines, they have all the processing. And so if you need lithium or purified silicon for solar or you know critical minerals for wind turbines like copper and aluminum like that's a place that you need to go and so it's been very um strategically done and but yeah i think that now is something because people do see it in their daily lives like if you need to get a new washing machine that used to be something that took a matter of weeks and now it's maybe you can't get it and so i think people realize that now these global supply chains that have played such a role in reducing the cost of consumer goods, including uh, technologies for the energy transition, uh, you know, we've kind of hit hit some bumps with COVID and with um, the uh, the Trump tariff wars, and so you know now we have to think about how can we uh, unglobal unglobalize some of these. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese said it 10 years ago and have done it really well. Uh, and so now we're putting some money in the U.S. toward that. And it's going to take some determination, you know, because it's it's going to take a while to pan out. The scales of these technologies now are so big um, that, you know, what we're talking about doing in the U.S. for new solar and battery plants, you know, is on the scale of one tenth of the plants that are in China right now. And so, you know, you can do some pretty simple math and realize how much of a cost reduction you get from that. And it's pretty substantial just on that much more manufacturing. So there's going to be some catch up and some higher prices to pay if we're going to do things domestically or, or from North America. Um, so it's going to take a while to, you know, to, to get where China is. Now, uh, I'm reading uh, Mariana Mercado's uh, book, The Entrepreneurial State. And she, she makes some very good points about uh, historic uh, U.S. Uh, economic policy. And she says, don't look at what the Americans do. They always talk about free enterprise and minimal government intervention and bootstrap, you know, the, the individual entrepreneurs bootstrap like they're all, you know, and Rand acolytes. She said, no, no, no. Look at what they do. What the mm -hmm. Americans have done is the government pours its money, enormous resources into de-risking key technologies, which once they're de-risked, de then the private sector floods into there, commercializes it, scales it up and commercializes it, and then they become the world power in that whatever that industry is. And, and she said, and it seems to me now that this is kind of the approach. Again, we're seeing it again. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act is kind of a, a variation on that theme. And once the Americans get their heads wrapped around something where they're going to be number one, I wouldn't bet against them. And so yeah. that, that seems, you know, is that kind of, does that Moscato's model kind of work here? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in her work because the parts of it that I've looked at directly, whether it's wind or solar or electric vehicles or, or other technologies. Yeah, clearly, I mean, the U.S. plays a role and it's not just like you said, it's not just basic research and development, which the U.S. plays a really important role in. It's the de-risking. It's buying early microprocessors and using them for, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles in the 50s or using touchscreens uh, by the Air Force in the 1990s and then 
by the time, yeah, the private sector is interested, they've been worked out, the costs have come down, there's a supply chain for those, and you can start integrating them into consumer devices. And so, yeah, that's that's the model. That seems to have worked really well. But politically, um, that has not been something you could sell for the last 40 years, because you know, really with the end of the 70s with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, it was all about that's industrial policy and government should not pick winners. And we need to leave it up to the to the private sector to pick. And so anytime you had government, you know, leaning in a little beyond R&D, it would get, uh, you know, it's, it's hand bitten off. And, you know, the best example of that is in 2010 with a solar company called Solyndra that had a way to use much less silicon that had gone up in cost by a factor of 10. Um, and so the US lent it almost $300 million and the company went bust because all of a sudden the prices of that silicon came way down because China expanded production. So it looked like an example of government picking winners and what a waste that is. And see, that's why we don't uh, do anything more than R&D. But that same program, the US loan program that funded Solyndra, you know, also provided critical funding to Tesla when it was really struggling. And so, you know, you can't just look at one example of, of a failure. You have to look at a whole portfolio that's been incredibly successful. But I think now with the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a much more broader acknowledgement that to be competitive, we just need to be more explicit about it and put some money behind it and say, look, we do need to de-risk these technologies because that's how we can be successful. And that's what other countries like China are doing already. So yeah, it's, it's, out, it's in the open now how we're doing it. Yeah, this is your your comment about the '80s and, and Reagan, Reagan and Thatcher uh, are a little hilarious for me because I graduated in '77, and I and I was going to university when that whole debate was was taking place, and I remember. I remember, you know, the at the University of Saskatchewan, the the commerce students were actively debating in the coffee shops about how they should bomb, you know, they should bomb government buildings and, you know, all of the, I mean, it, it just seems ridiculous. Well, it was ridiculous at the time, but it seems even more ridiculous now. And it seems like the cycle, you know, has come, come back around. And now we're talking about a different way of thinking about government intervention, though I will say, uh, Canada has not grappled with that yet. We still sprinkle money around a little bit here and a little bit there, just enough to get companies into trouble as opposed to getting them into, in, in, you know, into succeeding. And, and then we, we pat ourselves on the back where, and we haven't done, we haven't had, uh, you know, created the, the positive results that we had, we had hoped for. So I'd be very curious to see how this all plays out. Now, look at, let's talk about timeframes. Because a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Bloomberg NEF's head of mining and minerals, uh, Kwesi Mpofo, and he and I, we were talking about uh, set the uh, in, El, in Alberta could Alberta set up a critical minerals, battery metals refining and processing sector because they have some of the minerals. Uh, so could they do the the next stage in the in the supply chain? And I, and I asked him how long Alberta had, and I thought he'd say you know ten years, maybe twenty thirty at the outside. And he said, no, 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 three years. Canada has three years. Alberta has three years. Because if, if, if you don't move that quickly, Indonesia will bypass you. Vietnam will bypass you. Malaysia will bypass you. And I think the pace of technology change at the global level is not necessarily, I know it's not appreciated in Canada. Is it appreciated in, in the U.S.? Probably not. I, mean, I think the U.S. Has, has been fairly insular with a lot of things. 
Um, and that, I mean, I think that's one thing I've realized from, you know, traveling around the world to understand the solar industry and other uh, related uh, clean technology industries is things are happening quickly in a lot of other places. And yeah, like you meant, uh, was it um, Malaysia and Vietnam both have more than 5% of the value of their exports is from solar panels. I mean, these countries get it and they may not have cleaned up their but they understand the growth and the potential of these markets. And so there's a lot of effort going into this. And so, yeah, I think it's a problem for countries like Canada or others that are you know used to taking their time to, to gradually scale things up because a lot of ways that works better to, to take a gradual approach. But on the other hand, it's a good thing from the global climate perspective that you have almost international competition to get cleaner, or at least to supply the goods to make things get cleaner. And so in a lot of ways, we couldn't ask for more than the US and China putting heads on who can have a bigger clean energy sector and then in training other countries to play a role like Canada or Malaysia as well. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly the, the situation right now. And so speed is what we need to address the problem. And for those that want to play a role, speed is also a need to, to come up with a competitive position in it. I want to wrap up our conversation by talking about the technologies that we don't see, but that are critically important. I'm thinking about, we'll call them enabling technologies, uh, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning, for, for example. Uh, without those technologies, uh, a lot of the other related technologies like electric vehicles, where would it be without AI? And it looks like that may be a competitive advantage for, for North America. Uh, it, and so what is the role? How important are those enabling technologies to the technologies involved in the energy transition? And does North America maybe have a competitive advantage over China and other Asian co economies uh, on, in those areas? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say a few things here. One is, you know, we often think about, and I've already talked about it, supply technologies like wind and solar and electric vehicles. Um, but electric vehicles start to, that's something that consumers use. And in a lot of ways, it's a demand side technology. And there's a lot of evidence now that to, uh, you know, reach our emissions reductions goals, we need to do a lot more on the demand side by using less energy and at the same time accommodate economic growth and accommodate people's preferences for you know inclusive well-being for you know 8 billion people or the 100 billion that'll live in the next in the century and so the demand side is crucial and when you get on the demand side yeah information technology is crucial digitalization technology is crucial ai is crucial you know having a lot of decision making not be in the consumer's hands but uh, be done, you know, kind of quickly by uh, by software that that can make things happen quickly and and you know accommodate variable renewables and make sure that consumers can play a role in enabling that to happen. And yeah, you know, I think one thing you ask about whether North America can play a particular role in that. Yeah, there's a lot of you know coders and software that that's strong in, in Canada and the U.S. Um, but also like that's where a lot of the value is now. It's on the installation and the system integration and building cities that are based on, you know, shared transportation or electric vehicles and some autonomous components as well. And so there's a certain amount of that that doesn't seem like it's easily outsourceable or global or offshoreable. Uh, and that's certainly been the case with, you know, installing solar panels is, is a famous example, but I think there's gonna be more and more 
that's about the system integration that is local, that will rely on software, but also rely on local uh, expertise and labor as well. So I think there, there continues to be a, a local role here as well. Well, Greg, this is a fascinating conversation and we only scratched the surface today, but I really appreciate your insights. I think that this is a the the role of technology in the energy transition is a, it was a conversation that I think we need to have more of. And uh, hopefully with any luck in the next uh, six to 12 months, we'll have you back for another another chat. That'd be great. Enjoy the conversation. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you.